This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Rob, you've been in conversation with a Navy SEAL. Yes. Somebody who's a regular on Joe Rogan. Yes, absolutely. And for some reason, he decided that he'd, he wouldn't mind speaking to us, which is amazing. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, uh, fair play to Andy for responding to my hopeful email. And I think he's the first Navy SEAL or retired Navy SEAL, I should say, that we've ever, ever had on off script. And he's also a wingsuit world record holder. He set that back in 2015. I'm not sure whether it still stands, but at the time it was a world record. Uh, he uh, jumped in the squirrel suit. You know, the... Um, Those things are wild. I mean, it's insane. I've got a whole other part of this interview about that, yeah. uh, which we're going to run at a later date, but we're going to focus in on Navy SEALs. In fact, this interview probably was much longer than Andy wanted it to be, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was really That's quite... all ex- of our interviews. It was really quite extensive. Um, and ever since he was 11, he says he knew he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And you were just saying off air, Chris, that you were obsessed with Navy yeah, SEALs. Yeah, I was. You know, the SAS, from a UK perspective, uh, the US Navy SEALs, there was a fascination as a young boy. I always knew I never had the minerals to ever go that far and become an SAS or a Marine or anything of that ilk. I mean, so was laughing. I just had the image I mean, of exactly. Chris as a no, Navy SEAL absolutely. doing that, that swimming training. Just a row of men with his head just like seven <laughs> inches above everyone else's on the exactly. parapet. Was never Should we just shoot him first? Okay, done. Out of the game. <laughs> I would give away position and all sorts. But there was an incredible fascination, Rob, because at the time, mm. you may recall, was it Chuck Norris was doing a lot of films? Delta Force yeah. was a movie that I loved growing up. There was a lot of mythology surrounding yes, Navy SEALs. And just to clear it up, I mean, I wasn't entirely certain on exactly what they were either. US Navy's primary special operations force. Yeah, so they, they are they conduct small unit special operation missions in maritime, jungle, urban, arctic, mountainous and desert environments. All the hard ones, yes. basically. <laughs> exactly. And uh, they're typically ordered to capture or kill high-level targets, gather intelligence behind em- enemy lines. They're hand-selected, highly trained, possess a high degree of proficiency in direct action. And even though they weren't founded until 1962... Their roots can be traced all the way back to World War II. Actually, the US military recognised the need for covert reconnaissance of landing beaches and coastal defences, and they established a school, the Amphibious Scout and Raider School, in 1942 at Fort Pierce, Florida. Andy, both of his parents were in the military. Andy's dad served in Vietnam. Um, He was always going down that path. He always felt a a desire to become a Navy SEAL. He enlisted in the Navy while still a junior in high school. He attended military service in 1996. And then he completed boot camp and the most grueling program within the US military, which is the basic underwater demolition. SEAL is known as BUDS for short. And nearly 90% of all candidates are unsuccessful completing this six-month program. So when you consider how spectacular those candidates are physically when they apply for the program, yeah. the fact that 10% get through is, is amazing. It's I, notorious, these kinds of trainings, especially yeah. weeding out the people that just aren't tough enough to be yeah, the very, very best. It. I mean, 10 getting through from 100. That's amazing. Exactly I mean, it's that. Ex- so extraordinary. I wanted to find out what it takes to get through, yeah. and, and he gave some great insight on that. He ultimately would end up joining SEAL Team Six, which is the most prestigious SEAL team. He was active in the war on terror. He was deployed in Iraq. He was actually shot in Iraq by an AK-47 at close range. That's another part of this interview. Uh, he did recover, obviously, from that, and he returned to full active duty. And um, I wanted to kind of 
get his insight on this legendary hell week. He's been on both sides of it. He's been a recruit and he's been an instructor as well. So he can offer a unique perspective on how it sets about identifying worthy candidates and also the mental fortitude required to navigate it successfully. And I just sort of said to him off the cuff in a way, you know, given society at the moment and how soft we've all gotten, (laughs) wouldn't we all benefit from going through the BUDS program? I don't think everybody should go through BUDS. I do think people should willingly seek out adversity. Um, I think you find out who you are and what you're made of when you work through adversity as opposed to going around it. People who pursue the the path of becoming a SEAL, it's long. You know, It's going to take you 18 months, two years to get through the entire pipeline. And that pipeline is not defined by the round edges or corners. You know, They're very sharp. And that's designed to chew you up. It's designed to test you. It's designed to create adversity. It's designed to actually find adversity. The curriculum itself, I would say, works so well because it's actually really broad. You know, the, the things that we ask the students to do in training are not technically complex at all, actually. But there will be something in that training. And maybe it's cold water immersion. Uh, maybe it's sleep deprivation. Maybe it's physical exertion to a level that you didn't think possible. Maybe it's all of those things that will get you to a place where you really have to question who you are and what you want. And if you can find yourself in that moment and work your way through it, I mean, I, it, it, it provides for you the template and toolbox to be able to do things for the rest of your life that a lot of people will scratch their head and say, well, how do you do that? And you do that because you see the value of working hard and diving headlong into things that people say, well, you couldn't do that or that's impossible. It's like, okay, hold my beer. Why why don't you watch me while I do these things? I I just don't think anything positive comes from avoiding adversity, even though that seems to be societally the direction that we're going. Like you don't have to work for anything. It's just an app on your phone. You know, just hit this button. Everything will be delivered. Work from home, avoid, you know, hack this, hack that. It's like, yeah, but how about also work hard? You know, I think it would really benefit people if they had to go through a crucible of some kind. And that's a mantra that can chime with you, Chris, surely. It certainly you is. Do, you often speak from that same hymn sheet. Yeah, massively do. I do think, and I've said it on the show before, I think society, we are soft. Or at least it's Quiet quitting soft. and all that. All that nonsense. Just get on with it. There is a part of me, listen, there's a lot of ills in society that absolutely should be fixed and, and we need to write. There is an awful lot of it, though, that is just, just get on with it, bite your lip and just get on with it. I do believe there is an essence of that. So, so far, Rob, I'm loving Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. Uh, I wanted to gain an insight into the strength of character required to become, because I know for sure I could not. No. I would not be getting through that training. They wouldn't even accept me to apply, I don't think, for training. But the training rate has a pass rate of just over 10%. That's before you take into account the stellar resumes of the candidates who even make it as far as trying out for buds. So what was it about Andy's character that saw him stay the course? And this is an unexpected response from him because it was really more a warning against taking the romanticised view of a Navy SEAL. No selection process is perfect. Um, And I think that's an important point to start with because I actually really hate a lot of the spotlight that has been thrown on the SEAL community. I mean, the amount of media now that exists, whether it's you know, I say that and I host a podcast and it, and I have in my bio that I used to be a SEAL. I try not to hang my hat on that. But, you know, books and TV shows and movies, I think it's easy to paint the perception for people 
that it's a community of just exceptional individuals. And I will say that I did serve with some exceptional individuals. But in my own personal feedback of being in that community for 17 years, it was some of the most common people that you would ever meet in your daily life being asked to do things that were relatively uncommon. And the selection process does a really good job for character to a degree, but it's not perfect. You know, the honor man in my buds class is still in prison for luring people back to an apartment with his wife, killing them and chopping them up with a knife and disposing of the bodies in uh, grocery store dumpsters because he used to work at them when he was younger. So he understood the velocity with which they get changed out every day. He was the honor man of my buds class. Did, did you know he was a, 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 a psychopath? In hindsight, there were some red flags that we all chose to ignore. <laughs> he was a little he was a little special. He was touched by the you know, he fell out of the top of the special tree and hit a few branches on the way down. Like there were some indicators. I had no idea he was going to go to that level. We're all special and unique to our own degree. But I mean, I served with people who got deeply involved with organized crime while they were in trafficking drugs, alcoholism, substance abuse, the inability to have a stable relationship, financial struggles. That's like a small section of it. You know, the bottom end of the bell curve and the other end of the bell curve is everybody who is exceptional. And then there's everything in between. Um, and so I just I want people to realize that we're just talking about human beings and I don't care what selection process you go through. Human problems follow human beings wherever you go. So just because somebody was a SEAL um, or is a SEAL doesn't necessarily mean that they are a good person. And I worry that with the level of spotlight that has been put into that community, it allows people to get away with things that they shouldn't. I actually think you should hold people from that community to a higher standard and not open the door for them. They're more than capable of opening the door for themselves. Well, I wasn't expecting that story. No, no, nor was I actually, nor was I. And I, I, can I preempt the inevitable yes. questions, Chris? <laughs> His name is Benjamin Sifrit. You can Google him. I actually didn't have time to interject there, and I didn't want to turn this into a true, true crime interview, so we kind of moved swiftly on without really exploring that more. But I do like his overall message in that, that idea of you don't need to put people on a pedestal yeah. just because they've been yeah. through this training or succeeded at something. Like Absolutely. you said, everybody's just human. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and there is a real important message in that because you're right, the movies, everyone who makes it glorify through, it, glorify it, that these yeah. are extraordinary individuals, whereas he's just said there, they're not, they're flawed like anyone else. Mm. That being said, the BUDS program is designed to put candidates to the ultimate test. And Andy was one of the 12% or so who made it through. So I wanted to find out why. He says he won the lottery through his parents and how they raised him. I solidly middle class growing up on the West Coast uh, in California at a beach town. I was an aggressively average uh, athlete. I mean, I was on the water polo team and the baseball team, but let's just say I wasn't making the highlight reel. I was at the games, but maybe not participating as much as others. But I learned most of the lessons that allowed me to make it through training, through organized sports and working for my dad. You know, people look at uh, the military as this like this holy grail of life lessons. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, playing high school baseball and high school water polo the same lessons are there. You have to learn how to communicate. You have to deal with personality conflicts. You learn about hard work. You learn about work ethic. You learn about setting your goals. You learn about failure. You learn about success, um, integrity, discipline. Like all of those things exist in organized sports. And then I worked for my dad, who was a uh, brick and stone mason. 
Um, we moved back to Santa Cruz after the earthquake in 89. Safe to say, uh, you know, earthquakes in masonry don't interact very well. So post-earthquake, there was a lot that needed to be repaired. So, and that's where I was born and raised and we had moved away. So we came back. Working on a job site when you're 11 years old and your whole job is to move bricks from one side to the other, you learn how to set achievable goals for yourself and you learn how to chunk a massive goal into little pieces that you can digest and make it through the end of your day. I wanted to focus in on this legendary hell week. It intrigues me because I know I wouldn't be able to last the course more than 10 seconds. Right. Well, I like how you casually threw out there right before we went back on air about if Offscript did hell week, who would last the longest? <laughs> I mean, obviously, Rog. Like, there's yeah. no questions there. I'm back in Who would come second, though? Question. That's, that's gents, a big one. Gents would be second. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. I, mean, I think I would be last. I will put my hand up and <laughs> so say me and, her, me and Soda would be duking it out for fourth place. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, let's learn a little bit more about it. According to NavySeals.com, Hell Week is the defining event of the BUDS training. It's held early on in the third week of the first phase before, crucially, before the Navy makes an expensive investment. They want to find out what stock they're dealing yeah. with here before they spend a lot of money training all these people. So Hell Week consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours sleep. Oh, wait Cumulatively. I'm back in the game. Yeah, you are. You're, yeah, you're not bad. You know, <laughs> four hours sleep is my currency. This is where you fall out of the game. It tests physical endurance, yeah, <laughs> mental toughness, pain and cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, your ability to perform to work under high physical and mental stress, sleep deprivation. On average, only 25% of SEAL candidates survive Hell Week. The toughest training in the US military, it's often the greatest achievements of their lives. Was Andy then aware of Hell Week's legendary status when he signed up all the way back in 1996 for the Navy? And although you couldn't Google it back when he joined then, it was already firmly established in folklore that Hell Week was the crucible. So it starts on a Sunday and it ends on a Friday. So Sunday evening, usually somewhere between six to eight and it goes till Friday till about four to six, then, you know, to paint with the broom a little bit. You get about two hours of sleep on Wednesday and that's it. And about 85% of everybody who is going to quit will do so usually before Tuesday morning, like two, at, at around Tuesday midday, the attrition really drops off because you've really already done everything to somebody that is going to get them to quit up until that point, you can't actually make it that much harder. Like, oh, I'm going to make you even more tired. Well, I'm here to tell you the difference between 36 hours of no sleep and 40 hours of no sleep. It really isn't that much. And what the students don't realize, and I didn't know this until I went back as an instructor, you feel like during Hell Week, it's like getting harder and harder and harder. But as an instructor, you're actually backing off and doing less and less and less because they are in such a fragile state that you can't ask them to do more. They're so exhausted and just physiologically cooked, emotionally and mentally cooked, that you're actually asking them to do less. But to the students, it feels like you're asking them to do more. But again, beyond Tuesday, there's nothing you can do to really get people to quit. Like You're not going to make them any more cold than they've been. You're not going to make them any more tired. And that's, that's the kind of person that we're looking for. Like Regardless of what we do to you externally, internally, you maintain control. Like I can't actually, as an instructor, force anybody to quit. You have to make that choice on your own. So when someone does wave the white flag, okay, which again, 
It would be just a, imagine being the very first. Yeah. Oh, you don't to want to go. be the first. You know, yeah. the very first to oh, be like, cheapers. I can't take this anymore. It's like GIG and it's ringing the bell in the yard, isn't it? Well, exactly that. You'll hear now exactly that. What happens when someone quits? When you quit, you uh, you ring a bell three times, which is symbolic. There's paperwork to follow because it's the bureaucracy of the United States military. So trust me, paperwork is largely involved. But the training, whatever got you to that point where you said, hey, I'm going to quit the training ends like you are removed from training and you're separated from the class because the class continues on in the curriculum um so yeah you ring the bell you do the paperwork and of course during hell week since you're all over the place they bring the bell with you they just attach it to the back of a truck so it's always there so quitting can be very personal and private depending on when you do it but in hell week you ring the bell in front of all your classmates the the self-recrimination and the introspection that someone must go through having done that, having set out their dream as, as to complete the training. Was that part of what was motivating you or uh, did you even need that motivation, Andy? When I first got there, I was terrified of that bell. Like you didn't even want to look at it because, I mean, I think it's, it's okay to question yourself. Like, can I actually do this? But then when people start quitting and you're still there and they start ringing that bell, it's like throwing logs on a bonfire of motivation. So in Hell Week, when people are quitting something that you have determined that you are going to continue making your way through, it becomes motivation. I mean, they're making a decision. I've run into a bunch of students who have made the decision to quit. And there's only one emotion that they express when it comes to that. And it's almost always, if not always, regret. So you are watching somebody or you're not not generally watching them because you're busy, but you are physically present when somebody is making that decision and they ring that bell and you're still there it motivates the hell out of you Mm. that says a lot that you've been driven to the point of giving up a dream that's how difficult it is that's how strenuous it is so you've decided to quit and then you regret it afterwards yeah well of course all downside yeah exactly that yeah yeah because you know you're in that moment and you made the decision as he says you know basically it comes down to the mental side. And we'll yeah. find out why and how he kind of able, was able to construct this mental approach that, that got him through it. But there's some crazy stuff here, actually, in this next clip, what he reveals here, because I, I sort of said, what about those who refuse to quit but are in no fit state to carry on? Yeah. And I made the analogy with UFC when someone's being submitted and they don't tap out, but they basically just get put to sleep. Yeah. Andy corrected me on that front also. <laughs> Another thing that students probably don't recognize is how robust the safety mechanism is behind the scenes. Um, you know, as a, an example, one of the things that we do, and it was done to me as a student, it's called surf conditioning. Back in my day, it was called surf torture, but apparently that word is uh, too harsh in nature. And you link arms with your class and you walk out into the ocean, usually until it's about, you know, sternum deep. And you lay down with your feet facing the ocean so the waves are crashing over you. And, uh, spoiler alert, the Pacific Ocean can get cold at times. And if it's not cold enough, we keep them in the water long enough. And at nighttime, this is one of the things they do all the time during Hell Week. It's just a constant, you're fighting hypothermia the entire time. What the students don't know is that there is a to- there's a, a table in a three-ring binder. And the temperature is taken of the water and all you, it's like, this is the temperature of the water. This is the maximum time that we can keep them in before we need to pull them out. And you pull the students out and they do a 180 and they walk back towards the beach and there are vehicles with headlights pointing at them. So the students can't really see what's going on, but behind those headlights 
are a suite of medical personnel that are observing each and every one of those students. We're looking at the water immersion tables. We're looking at how long we have to have them out of the water. So we're not trying to get people to kill themselves. In the curriculum, there have been people who have died in training, um, which I think is actually essential. I don't want anybody to die. But if people stop dying in training, the training is no longer hard enough for what the real world application of that job is going to be. But we do everything we can to make sure that that doesn't happen accidentally or let somebody take it to that point. Um, I mean, if you pass out in surf conditioning, you're going to get pulled out and you're going to get rewarmed. You may be given the opportunity to join the class again, or you might get rolled back due to a cold injury, but we're not going to let just somebody sit there and die. Um, you know, jujitsu, I've been doing jujitsu for five years. So when it comes to somebody making the decision not to tap out, oftentimes that's because right before you go out, it becomes very euphoric. And you just dream off into the ether world and you don't realize you're getting choked out. It actually is as horrendous as it looks. Like yeah. right before you go out, you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you like wake up feeling like you've had like the most deep dream and you have no idea what the hell happened. So a good analogy and metaphor, but slightly off at the same yeah. time. You know what? I'm not going to take that one from Andy. You know why? Because he says it's so safe. You know, we figured out the safety. It feels mm. unsafe, but ultimately it's safe. But people have died. But we're not just going to sit there and let them die but people have died. I don't, I don't quite buy that. It's like, it is dangerous enough. And as he said, it needs to be rigorous enough. If it's not rigorous enough that people are dying, then it's not rigorous. I think what he's saying is they're not going to let people die through negligence. Through negligence. But 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 there is the chance, there is the chance that someone can have such an adverse reaction that they can die. Uh, But his point is, if you're going to be a Navy SEAL serving in those zones, then you need to be thoroughly and rigorously tested for your, 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 yeah. your, 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 your ability to withstand that. But if you are scared in that training that if you go any further, you could die, I think that's valid because people have died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting what he says. Yeah. yeah, if you do pass out or, you know, you will in some instances, in some cases, be given the chance to rejoin. I mean, yeah. that kind of flies in the eye. You would think if the training is designed to test your ultimate physical and mental capabilities and you do pass out or you do get a bit too cold, you would think, no. That's you done, whether you've rung, rung the bell or not. That's you done. But he is there saying mm. there are instances. Well, where I guess it's case by in. case, isn't it? I yeah. guess. Interesting. But um, I, I want to get to this bit because this, this is kind of this comes down to the crux of how you get through it, and this is how he got through it. He talks about the ability to make your world small. So, what's the significance of this? There's not a Harry Potter wand where you can just say, "Hey, this is magic, and this one tool is going to work for everybody." The students that are capable of maintaining complete and absolute control of their thoughts specifically how they set their goals and how they approach their goals, have a much higher likelihood of making it through training than somebody who would allow me as an instructor to take the wheel of their thoughts and then invade their thought process. If you think about it, we all have a point in time where you're going to say enough is enough. And I can I can honestly, I can tell you somebody's breaking point in like a one minute conversation with people off the street. So I can do it with you. It's like, hey, we're going to do an exercise. We're at the Pacific Ocean. The o- ocean's uh, 45 degrees, would you be willing to go out there and jump into the water and get right back out? Most people would say, sure. I'm like, okay. Would you be able to go into the water if I asked you to and you had to stay there in your neck for a minute? People are like, well, what am I going to get for that? Actually, it would probably be their most common answer. Like, how much are you going to pay me? It's like, nothing. We're doing an experiment here. Get on board. Most people are like, sure, no problem. I'm like, okay, five minutes. I'm like, you're going to lose some people. 10 minutes, right? Some people are going to change their mind. 60 minutes. You know what I mean? We can play this out to a point where everybody goes, that's too much for me. And what they're actually saying is, 
I cannot fathom that much time at that level of being uncomfortable. That's mm-hmm. actually what they're saying. And so my goal as an instructor would be to slam open the optic of the students and get them to think about how cold they were and how long I was going to make them cold, right? How Here's your goal. Here's where you, you know, here's where you are. Here's your goal. And let's just focus on the distance between the two. And if I could do that, if they would let me take the wheel of their thought process, the likelihood of them quitting astronomically went through the roof. Or you could take that same person. Let's say the hour is a goal. And it's, and I've played this out so many different times and watched it happen in real life. The difference between somebody who views an hour as 60 one minute cycles or one 60 minute cycle is huge, you know, because then you can take the 60 cycles and let's make it 120 cycles and each of them are 30 seconds long. And it's only your goal to think about life 30 seconds at a time. And maybe that's too much. So let's knock it down to 15. But all you're going to think about is 15 seconds versus somebody else. And I'm sitting there as an instructor and I'm counting down how much time you have left. And I'm going to choose the biggest number possible and just try to overwhelm you and slam your optic of time open. The people who can control their thoughts and digest and chunk their world into something that they can, you know, it's, it's how do you eat a whale or an elephant? It's a bite at a time, right? Super common saying. But it is so powerful in application in real life because it allows you to focus on what is important at the moment to the exclusivity of the magnitude of your goal. Mm. And if you can just keep repeating that process, you will get to what your goal is. And I'm not saying this makes it easy and I'm not saying it makes it painless. But the difference that I have, I have no data to support this other than what I anecdotally saw as a SEAL instructor. The difference between those two students is night and day. One's probably going to make it, and one is probably not. And then there is, in that, a comparison between any ambition or endeavor in life, professionally, personally. You know, I I sort of made that observation, and he was like, absolutely. You know, it's uh, that's how you approach everything that's difficult, or you want to achieve something that's lofty, that's a long way away. You know, it's something that we all struggle with, I think. Yeah, definitely. So when something feels too big to tackle, you're not even going to attempt it, right? It overwhelms you and then yeah. you just forget it and you kind of, you don't take that first step. But, you know, he, he did put it very well there, I thought. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think that is something applicable to absolutely everybody listening. I wanted to get a feel for whether going through the BUDS program and becoming a Navy SEAL fundamentally changed who Andy was as a person. And, and I suppose the assumption that one would make is that it would imbue you with an enormous amount of self-confidence. I was very proud of the accomplishment. But I was also very aware that it was just like a, it was a bus stop along the journey. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed about the SEAL community is there's actually not really an end state. There's no arrival. It's like, oh, and now you've done it. There's always another school that you can go to. There's always another job that you could learn about. Um, It's just like, it never, I think that's what I enjoyed the most about it. It was an environment that had endless and boundless opportunity and capacity for learning. You could just always, and I and I, I also feel so fortunate for the people that I served with. I mean, there were people who were so much better than me at every single aspect of what we did. And it's inspiring to be around those kind of people, to see what's possible, and then to try to set your goals to be able to accomplish what they're able to do. It's humbling. It's inspiring at the same time. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like, it was just problem solving. That's really what we did at the end of the day is... Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Hey, here's an interesting problem set. 
figure out a nonlinear solution to this problem that most people say is impossible. And once you start doing that, it's pretty damn fun. And it's hard to replicate when you get out. Uh, go on. As we talk about stereotypes of the, being in the military, being a Navy SEAL, there's there's so many that we've discussed already. You also think about the closeness, the bond. Yes, you do. Exactly that. And that's what I wanted to kind of gauge from this last clip with Andy. Whether that brotherhood, for want of a better word, is stronger with his cohorts and his colleagues in the military than you're able to fashion in the real world. They could be. You know, the term brotherhood is thrown out a lot and right. it's easy to put on a shirt or get a tattoo of. It's actually kind of hard to live. I've been uh, largely let down by the, uh, and I don't mean like somebody has let me down. I mean, just in general by the veteran community, specifically the SEAL community. Man, they are very uh, judgmental and vocal about others' success. Um, and it's almost as if they don't want anybody to be successful given their background. Um, and I think a lot of that is because they have been unable to find success themselves outside of being a SEAL. Being a SEAL is what you, it's what you do. It's not who you are. And 20, even a 20 year career. I mean, I went in when I was 18, I would have been 38 when I got out. If I had done 20 years, you have to be able to redefine yourself and do something else. And if you can't, and if you can't put it down, it, it creates a kind of a culture of like vitriol and viciousness towards the people that you used to serve with. So I wish I could say that those bonds, to some degree, yes, because you share an experience that is, I'm glad that nobody else shares. And you put a level of faith and trust in other people. And by that, I mean, you put your life in their hands to a degree at some point in time, which most people will never experience in the, in the real world, you know, to use air quotes, whatever that means to people, which again, I think is a good thing. But it's just people. You know, I, I have friends that I'm equally as close with who have never served in the military. They never will. Um, I think it's more about the people or person in the connection than it is necessarily the environment. So quite a few of those questions I asked him, he totally confounded me yeah. with his response. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. Yeah, I really appreciate how real he is and how candid he is. That's yeah. so refreshing, isn't it? Because it's so, as he says that, you can think, yeah, obviously, you've got these set of people. Think of the type of people maybe that are going to Harvard or, you know, they're getting that early success in life. Yeah, I've made it through the training. I'm that special 10%. Then all of a sudden, it's like, that's what you hang everything on as opposed to, well, I still need to have a purpose in life. Exactly. And I still need to have direction and I'm still going to go through the troubles that people go through and everyone encounters that at some stage exactly. whenever your career hits a wrong turn or we actually likened it to professional athletes as well having to retire at the similar sort of age late 30s uh, there's more to come from andy his wingsuit world record jumps and even some of his active service as well which we're going to get to in a future interview but you can check out the cleared hot podcast available on itunes he's got some great guests on that and uh, massive thanks to him for sparing yeah. the time to have a chat with us the Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 